This is the Mordecai Podcast. I'm here at the San Diego Comic-Con for the first time. This is Meg Lemke, and I am talking to Avi Ehrlich. Hello there. At Silver Sprocket. And Avi is the founder and publisher, correct? That's right. Yes, I am. Guilty. <laughs> and we were... This is... Is this your first or your millionth time at San Diego Comic-Con? I wish I knew. It's between those two numbers. Um, I don't know... I, I literally don't know. Can you tell us how long you've been around? Um, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> this is the ultimate indie press. Is it's it's amorphous? You said you're like a vampire. Oh yeah, we're ageless. We've been we've been around longer than time, so there's there just isn't a way to answer the question. So what works for you at this show? Uh, truly, every single time that we've been at Comic-Con, there have been at least two and a half days where I wonder, why the hell are we doing this? And I swear I'm never going to do it again. But something unexpected and wonderful has happened every year that has made it worth our while and kept us coming back. Uh, but I think blind enthusiasm and optimism and a, a misplaced uh, sense of confidence. Um, yeah, hope. Yeah, there's still hope. Take that, Neil Gaiman. <laughs> How many books do you publish a year? Um, we publish between two and four books a month. And there's 12 months. I don't know. It's been, <laughs> it's been a long day. I This is the end of preview night. I'm functioning on a, a quarter of a brain cell. But we got this. I mean, you really stand out because it's such a, like, fabulous, queer, you know, indie booth, right? Nestled between some, like, pretty serious superhero situations. That's true. I mean, well, we're we're here for people who like comics. Do people find you? Do you think you like your fans zoom in and find a safe space? Um, we've been. There are a lot of people who come to our booth who have been coming to our booth every year, and they all had to discover it once and be like, "Holy, shit, what is this? This is amazing! Oh my god!" And then they keep coming back, and it's great. And uh, what's I think a lot of our artists have their own weird. Uh, scene or community or audience um, that um, isn't like the traditional comics audience like a lot of our and, um, but they do have like very dedicated followings and uh, I think that if you like one of our artists you're going to find our other artists very interesting too not because they're similar but because they have a, a similar energy and vibe and um, set of values hmm. kind of like a cultural language if you will you published a number of people who've become quite popular, like uh, Benji Nate and Ben Passmore, and you published their first books. Is that right? Yes, that is right. How do you how do you feel about that experience of you know uh, creating a foundation for artists and then they're moving on to other publishers? That's rad as hell. I mean, my dream would be for other publishers with better resources to realize how amazing these artists were and let me just take a nap. Mm -hmm. Like, I would love to be obsolete. Like, please, like. Penguin Random House, give me a billion dollars to run your... No, don't, because I don't trust you with them. You're a corporation. But, I mean, I think it's great. Uh, these artists are amazing. They deserve it. It is so rad that the world is catching up to how good their lives can be by reading these better comics. And who's, the, you know, the big book for this show for you, like, in your booth? Like, who are you really promoting? We're really promoting everything, but um, we're premiering... Uh, we have a brand-new animated short uh, based on Fun Girl by Elizabeth Peach, um, that, uh, she was like a special guest at SPX last year. It's already a big hit in France and Germany and so many places and right here. Um, so that's really fun. Uh, we've got the world premiere of, of Thunder and Lightning by Kimberly Wang. It's 
fucking phenomenal um, corporate magical girls in the apocalypse. Uh, but really, like, all of our books are rad as hell. Like, we don't, um, we're not a publisher that's like, okay, what's new right now? Let's sell it really hard and then move on to the next thing. Um, like, we continue to promote our books after they come out because they're still good after they come out. Mm-hmm. They're not a periodical that's meant to be, like, pulped when the next issue arrives. So you really support your backlist. I see that. The, you have a lot of backlist titles here. Yeah, we do. And it's starting to be, like, we had to change our booth layout to bring to have three tables rather than one where you walk into it just so we have room to show off. And we still had to leave books at home, which mm-hmm. fucking sucks, but we've just got to do the best with what we have. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, we the backlist is really good, and it, it's really cool that every time an artist does something, people are reminded of their old projects and like kids on the internet. I don't know how to engage with them, but they talk about our books and <laughs> that have been out for a while, and that's great. Yeah, that Elizabeth Beach book uh, got a great review in PW. Actually, it's very funny. It did. We I used that as our a quote on like our uh, we made like a poster about it, like mm. psychic, like next level psychic queer comedy or. I don't remember what, what what they said, but it was really kind. It's a good reviewer. <laughs> it was a really good Anonymous reviewer. Anonymous reviewer. Nice job with the writing. <laughs> okay, I am going to close this off. Thank you so much, Avi. So this is Meg Lemke at San Diego Comic-Con. I'm talking to Kazu Kibuishi, who I just got to interview on stage about the release of the much, much anticipated Book 9 conclusion of the series of Amulet. So, Kazu, how are you feeling about the last book coming out? Uh, I feel relieved. Um, I'm excited. I want to see what um, people think about it. Um, and uh, I'm excited about all the other projects that I get to work on now. <laughs> so one of those you said on stage is the movie version, the live-action movie version. You can't tell us where it's coming out, when it's coming out, but tell me about the process that you're in with it right now. Oh, uh, yeah, right now, um, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to say who I'm working with. <laughs> um, I'll let them I'll let them decide uh, when to make that public. But uh, I've been involved um, in a way that I haven't been able to be involved before. Uh, it, it was one of the reasons why this particular book took longer. I wanted to see how far, uh, how how much time I could I could take away from the book to help the book, <laughs> if that makes sense. Where I'm not always just drawing, um, and in this case, I'm getting to to be a producer and working on um, helping the screenwriter along with the story. Uh, and uh, I, I, I can't say when it'll be done, but uh, we're you know we're rolling on it. So you're, you're saying that you took some of this period to kind of like uh, energize yourself about the story. And in our panel, you described the final book, Wave Rider, which is coming out in February. Um, that's February 2024, looking ahead to the spring season, as a pocket epic. So what do you mean by a pocket epic? Yeah, I wanted the book to feel as big as I could possibly make it but also not make it that long. Because I, I don't think kids want to read a dictionary. <laughs> so I wanted to, to make sure that um, I was really efficient in how I presented a very big idea. And so I just packed it full of really big concepts in the ways that old comics used to do back in the golden and silver age of comics. Um, and I've been, I've been trying to push for that um, throughout the series, but I think I've done it more so in this particular book than any one I've done so far. And, you know, a lot of your readers have grown up with you, right? So it's been 15 years since the first amulet appeared. Um, what kinds of questions have they asked or what kinds of stories have you heard from readers that have shown how much, you know, they've matured along with the volumes? 
um, yeah, a lot of the questions they ask turn into story elements in the book. So um, they're always um, they're always really concerned or or they want to know about the characters. And to them, the characters are real. <laughs> And I'm, and in a way, I, I have to sort of see it that way as a as a creator. I'm just their caretakers, and so they're asking me, the caretakers of the characters, how the characters are doing. Um, and so that's what I, you know, I, and I take that, you know, I take that pretty seriously when I go to write the books um, to make sure that I'm not writing my story through them, through the characters, that I somehow empathize with these creations. <laughs> And, and allow them to live a life that seems organic, um, that people can, you know, get behind and, and really relate to. Um, and when that's not happening, that's the stuff that I scrap. We're getting, like, good Comic-Con ambient noise here. <laughs> um, so I'll just ask you finally, tell me, because I wanted to ask this on stage, we didn't get to it, because it's, you know, it's sort of a big question. Who are you reading now that you want to mention? So, like, comics has changed a lot in the last 15 years. Not to put you on the spot, but, you know, people have followed in your footsteps. Do you have any creators? And um, you please do include your wife, um, yeah. who you want people to hear about. Yeah, number one, of course, is my wife, uh, Amy Kim Kibuishi. Uh, her, her book, um, The Rima Chronicles, Realm of the Blue Mists, and... Uh, and she's working on a second one in the series. Um, that is the, my my first go-to, especially for readers of, of Amulet. Um, it's it's an easy you know it's 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 an easy transfer from my book to that book. Uh, they'll they'll love it. Um, let me see other uh, other graphic novels. Um, I, I, I love I love Jerry Craft's graphic novels. Mm-hmm. He's a friend of mine. His his stuff like his stuff is hilarious. Uh, another funny book that I really like is Ham Helsing. By um, uh, is it uh, Rich Meyer? I, I, I like that. Um, and um, oh gosh, I don't read that many graphic novels. <laughs> <laughs> are you reading? Are you reading um, some serious prose for adults? You want to mention? <laughs> oh, serious prose for uh, well, I just read a lot of whatever is topical. I, I'm just reading about um, smoke jumpers right now. Ooh, like, what, yeah, what's I just, a smoke jumper. A uh, smoke jumper is somebody who um, jumps into the middle of a, fi- a forest fire. Oh. And starts like hatcheting the wood uh-huh. to to stop it from from moving in certain directions. Mm-hmm. Uh, Very timely. Yeah, and and in Washington State, that was like a big thing. They yeah. they have some of the best smoke jumpers in the nation up there. And, and I was reading the them. rest of us. Yeah, and so I, I'm really into um, for for whatever reason. I, well, I guess this is the reason. I, I'm really into emergency management, and I, I noticed that a lot of my readers are into it too. Mm-hmm. So I do a lot of research on on emergency management, and so right now, um, smoke jumpers is what I'm studying. Them. I mean, the Amulet series is all about sort of uh, managing a fraught environment. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I feel like in some sense I am making uh, like a little life vest <laughs> or some kind of a floaty for somebody's arms. <laughs> um, and I'm just throwing them into the schools and saying like, here, you know, here's a little bit of help. <laughs> and, you know, it'll be fine. Things are going to be all right. You know, I want them to look forward to the next book. Mm-hmm. You know, so you're giving somebody some hope. You're also giving them, you know, some sense of relief and fun. Mm. Uh, and I feel that that is my, my job. So it, and when I can kind of frame it that way, it's actually easier for me to do my work mm. so that I'm not going into work going, I'm doing this for myself. I'm not, I'm doing this because I dream of it. You know, I'm going in there every day thinking, okay, how do I do my job well? 
and what do the kids need or what do the teachers need what do the what do the well, you know what do librarians need you know and i talk to them all the time um and so it, it it makes it fun for me to to think of it that way and so i bring in emergency management because that's it's, it's very useful in, in nearly every situation thank you so much kazu and uh everyone in mordecai land look out for wave rider in february i am talking to lara antel i just want to ask her She's coming to MoCA for the first time since Ronan and the Endless Sea of Stars came out. How is you? How are you feeling about the reception of the book at the show? Uh, yeah, it's been great. I mean, I feel like I did a signing yesterday with Abrams, and I got to talk to a lot of interesting people. And um, it's a story that uh, is may- maybe not for everyone because it can be difficult. But I think when it finds the right people, it um, it, it people really seem to feel it an impact from it, feels something from it, and that's kind of like the best feeling to make work that actually affects people. And you were telling me about how Rick Lewis, who is the co-creator and who experienced the loss of his son, and you came together. Um, so how did he find your work and you started collaborating on the book? So uh, he actually found my work because he was perusing um, books with pictures in Portland, Oregon, and there was a mini-comic there, uh, My Comic Guide to Brewing, which is all about making coffee, and it's humorous and informative, and he uh, thought that the style was emotive, emotional, but still, um, I don't know, it had this quality that he wanted because he didn't want something that would be too somber. It's already a heavy subject, and he wanted somebody whose work could be kind of energetic and uh, expressive. And so he just reached out to me, and we started talking about it. And once I realized, like, what an incredible project it was, I thought, you know, he, he was happy self-publishing it. And I was like, I think we, we should shoot shoot bigger. And so we uh, decided to make a pitch then pitch it out to agents, then pitch it out to publishers. And, yeah, it became a really great collaborative process because um, he had never written a comic before, but he's a huge fan, so he knew a lot of the comic's language. Uh, but, yeah, we did a lot of playing off of each other on stuff. So there'd be things that he'd write that I hadn't considered and things that I would draw either because... I thought it was best, or I misunderstood what he wrote, and then he's like, no, that's better, let's do that. Um, well, I got a great review on PW, so maybe we can link that in the show notes. Thank you so much, Laura. Thank you so much. This is Meg, back with more to come at San Diego Comic-Con 2023, and we are on the show floor, which maybe you can tell from the ambient noise, but I am here with Nidhi Chanani, uh, who most of you may know from Pashmina, which is a really beautiful and, I think you know, groundbreaking work that has continued to be on syllabi for, you know, middle grade courses um, and a favorite of libraries. And she has a brand new book out called Super Boba Cafe. And this was one of our top 10 picks for the All Comics Announcements issue. And it was on, uh, it was also an editor's pick on US Book Show. And I'm so glad to see you here at Comic-Con. How is your show going? It's great. It's really packed here. It's like so many more people, but... I really have to say that, you know, I did, I've done this, I think is my 10th year here and the first eight years I did a booth and being free from a booth. I don't have a booth this year and just kind of doing panels and signings. It's a different experience and I prefer it. So did you have a booth for your own illustration company? Because you came to books from doing general kind of pop illustration, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I had a booth for eight years in small press. And I was selling my illustrations on prints and cards and magnets, and they're still available on my website, but that's how I started. And I started with, you know, all that hard work and hitting the pavement and also not really understanding what I could do with comics and being exposed to this greater world of comics here was kind of the best place. 
So San Diego Comic Con sort of helped you move from doing like gorgeous, gifty illustrations to the fully realized narrative that was your first graphic novel. Absolutely, Comic Con and Genie. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah. So it was like both of those things where I was like, oh, I can do more. I can do more than one single illustration. So. The other work. Whoa! Ah! It got loud. People are getting excited. People are getting excited in the background. The other series you have is the Shark Princess, Shark Fairies. Shark Princess. Yes. So Shark Princess is an early reader graphic novel series, and that's with Penguin. We have three books. The third one's coming out in March. The second one came out in May, and it's called Shark Party. Um, and it's all about these two shark friends, and one of them is an introvert, and one of them is an extrovert, and they kind of learn how to support each other through that. But also, there are a lot of sharks, you know? So. Oh, that's right. It's a lot of sharks in the sea. Well, and this and this book, I should say, Super Boba Cafe, is from Amulet at Abrams. And it interested me with you know, Shark Princess and this book, is that their departure and that your first work, while it had a lot of light and magic, is a serious work, right? It's a serious reckoning with history and family. And these works are lighter. Like, they have a lovely sort of play. Can you talk about, like, making that shift? Yeah, I think that what happened after Pishmina is I kind of saw two paths in front of me. I saw I could be the identity author, and I could just talk about and write about identity, um, or I can do a departure from that and kind of embrace some of the more lighter things. And also, it's a very conscious decision on my part, especially in Super Boba Cafe, to make characters who are, you know, air quote, diverse, and not mention it in the book. Because we are more than our diverse identities. And we can go and have adventures, and we can have fun, and we can drink a lot of boba. Um, and also, I want to kind of be able to be seen as somebody who's not just making books that are kind of checking a box. I want to make books about sharks. I want to make books about sloths. You know, I want to make whatever I want to make. And I want to, if I don't do that for myself, then I'm just helping other people pigeonhole me. So let's talk about Super Boba Cafe because um, I was joking before we got on the pod here that I have a 12-year-old, as many people, and many listeners have heard about her since she's my, like, ground's eye view of what is cool in kids' comics. Every time I open her backpack, there's something new. And she is also obsessed with Boba Tea. And it happened overnight. It's all Sephora and Boba Tea. And I had no idea what the cachet was of Boba Tea. And you clearly do. You clearly do. Apparently, I'm very much like a 12-year-old child um, because I also love Sephora and Boba Tea. (laughs) So, um, where there's a lot of similarities there. But it was actually inspired by um, reading Neil Gaiman's Neverwhere, where there is a London below. And when I was reading it, I kind of had this question pop up in my brain of, what's below San Francisco? And the answer came that it was a monster. And at the same time, I was probably drinking boba tea at the same time as reading the book. Um, And I think it just kind of allowed me to follow a trail, and Super Boba came from that. But... I also just love this idea of a grandma making a gigantic boba every single day to feed a monster, you know? Um, so, you know, talking about serious topics, this 
I wonder if there's a gentrification story here. Like, is, something, is there something happening? I mean, this is in San Francisco. I couldn't help but read the copy and wonder about this struggle with the monster under San Francisco taking over San Francisco and a grandmother who's lived there a long time trying to sort of fight it off and pacify it. Is there another, is there another theme here we're getting at? So, actually, I love that you pick up on that. The theme for me that I really wanted to hone in on is that we have external and internal monsters. Um, and the gentrification and kind of the change of San Francisco will come out in book two. Ooh, interesting. Yeah. So, there is more to come. Yeah. So, I can't really say much about it right Can now. you talk about drawing San Francisco? Oh, my God, yes. I love the city. I live there. I don't live there now. I live in the East Bay. But... Um, the city is just a place of inspiration for me. It's so beautiful. It's so fog-filled. Um, but I feel like every corner that you're on in the city, when you turn around, you're like, oh, my God. It's just so picturesque. And so drawing it was just like kind of a love letter to a city that I, I lived in and I loved. But also, it's hard. You know, drawing backgrounds is really hard. It's very labor-intensive. Um so I'm happy that, that there was also the the multiple scenes in the cafe that, you know, I don't have to redraw that um, and that, you know, you kind of get used to. But, yeah, it was really a wonderful experience. Yeah, we always talk about the city as character. The city is really a character here, right? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I love that when the environment is a character. And also, because the city is housing the monster, right, it has to kind of come alive in a certain way. So who else are you reading right now? Ooh, that's a great question. Um, I'm actually in the middle of The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue. Um, I just finished Squished, uh, which I think is a scholastic book. Or that's a follow-up to Allergic. Yeah, but I never read Allergic, which is funny. Um, yeah, my daughter is obsessed with Allergic. Yeah, okay. I have to check it out. So I also, I have an eight-year-old. So I end up reading some of the things that I want to read. Um, but mostly, she wants to read with me. So we are on maybe our 10th read of the Camp Click series. It just it's, keeps going. It does. And I heard, I just saw, I was looking for books for her online, and I saw that there's another book coming yeah, out. Yeah, they have a new one coming up. Yeah, so uh, I didn't tell her, so I'm going to be like the best mom and surprise her with the new one. Oh, nice, nice. Um, yeah, what do you think about Squished? Um, I really like Squished. I thought it was a really interesting... So my, I have an only child. And I thought that it was a really interesting way for us to talk about what it's like to be in a big family, you know? Um, and so that was a, an interesting thing to kind of unpack and talk about how nice it is to have your own room, you know? Um, but yeah, I love those... I love these kind of um, stories where you really can take something from it and have a conversation. And it's so generative. So... Real quick, what's been your impressions of Comic-Con this year since you've been coming for many years? And, um, you know, the big talk is that there's not as many celebs. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of book celebs, but there's not screen and film and streaming celebs due to the SAG-AFTRA and writer's strike. So what is your impression this time around? So my impression is the show floor is more crowded, as everybody's been saying. But I actually think the panels are a little more well-attended. Yeah, so I think with a little less competition... Listen, I want them to be here. I want them to not be striking. I want them to be making and working and getting what they want. Right, or to be striking but win. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Right, yes. Or have stopped the strike because they won, right? Um, but it is interesting how it's impacted some of the other stuff, and it feels a little more like a Comic-Con that's about comics. Um, 
But again, I want to be clear that I like the combination, you know, yeah. so, but it does have a different feel. Right. Oh, that's great. So let's just get one more reminder to readers that this is Super Boba Cafe. It is coming out in fall 2023. What is the release date? October 24th. 23, 23. October 24th. Oh, really? No, no, no. That's next year. No, no, no. October 24th, 2024. Ah! Okay. Sorry, Kate. <laughs> that was a good, like, who's on first moment. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, no, I have it memorized. Yeah. She knows what she's talking about, Meg Lemke. <laughs> you guys, literally on the 24th of October, 2023, walk into your local comic shop. Actually do it earlier to your indie bookstore <laughs> and pre-order. Um, and that is from Amulet, a wonderful imprint at Abrams Comics Arts. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Meg. This is Meg Lemke with More to Come, the Publishers Weekly Comics Podcast. And we're here at San Diego Comic-Con 2023. And I am speaking to Rena Ayoyang who is an artist, a cartoonist, a small press publisher, a force of nature. And she is here with the man in the Macintosh suit, um, her Filipino graphic noir from Drawn and Quarterly. And it's gotten a lot of really lovely attention, including a great review of Publishers Weekly. Um, and Vina is a frequent Comic-Con attendee, so she's going to tell us about it. Yeah, well, I just start. I, I came a couple of times, and I came for the Eisners. That was the first time, but but um, but now I'm I've always been sort of a fan girl, like yeah, ever since the beginning. Yeah, what's that? Does it speak louder? Oh, um, I've always <laughs> been a fan girl of like you know uh, pop culture and 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 like the well, I do like you know star catching. Start yes. chasing. You are a fan. Like, you know, <laughs> I I am all into it. Like I I your have, first book I'm, was really about being a fan. Yes. Is, yeah. So that just helped. That just like was part of the whole theme when I got when I did blame this on the boogie. I I came here before then, but it was like that was like that was like starting off the whole theme of like maybe the whole tour of blame this on the boogie. And so, um, so yeah, it's always been fun. And like, I, I try to come every chance I get. Every time I, I get a badge, I love it. I love co- the cosplay. There was like people like on the bus, like waiting for the bus, and they were from um, Mandalorian. And so I was just snapped a picture of them like right outside of their like of the hotel, drinking their coffee. And um, I love it. And I, I just love the enthusiasm of it. I especially love this year because I think the focus is more on on comics and um and so um and coming back coming back to in person um i think this is like probably one of the first in person back after it was back it came back last year but this is the first sort of up to full speed um with you know less mandates which is a whole other conversation but it is the first up to full speed with attendance yes yeah and so it's been really exciting so um and also getting to see other cartoonists I haven't seen for like, you know, literally three years. Um, like Fanographics and like Silver Sprocket, who's been amazing. Um, there's, they're a um, publisher, but also a comic store in San Francisco and they've been great hosting my signings. So they've been fun. So hopefully people can catch them. Yeah. We actually have, um, Avi Ehrlich is one of my first interviews I did oh. for this. So if you're listening now, you may have listened to Avi a little earlier in this. Um, so you mentioned Blend This on the Boogie, which was another PW favorite. And that was your family memoir, uh, about how music and musicals, uh, were part of your family culture and the man in the Macintosh suit is a big departure in a way except it's also about performance I think and about a sense of style and history and 
Yeah, it's like、uh, like how Blameless on the Boogie was an homage to the American musical. The the man, the Macintosh too, is an homage to、um, Hollywood film noir. So I always wanted to do a detective comic, but I also wanted to, I also love the romance of of classic Hollywood film noir, and I wanted to show that through a comic book, but also have Filipino leads and also talk about Filipino American history that、um, a history that hasn't been really.、Um, Taught in schools outside of like an ethnic studies program, so I wanted to insert that, but also focus on these wonderful characters and this wonderful story. And I hope people enjoy it. And I, th- I think they are. I mean, I've been getting some good res- re- responses, especially from the Filipino American community.、Um, and we had this really great panel yesterday at the library. The library here is actually having a- their own conference too. It's free to the public, and we had this amazing panel、um, with.、Um, Matt Tavares and and、um, oh gosh、uh, Jasmine Walls and and Kate Glashin and they're 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 a bunch of great、um, young adult car-、uh, cartoonists so it was a, re- a really good blast and、um, you know my book is available there too、um, at the library bookshop so it's great to like buy. Um, indie cartoonists work, but also support libraries because we libraries need our support so much right now. Yeah, and the thing about if you request a book at a library is that it can actually then end up getting in the library system. So you maybe、yeah. one book request becomes like a forty library system request. I mean that's right. Yeah. So what else have you been reading yourself? Oh gosh.、Um, well. Tin Fam just came out. He's a cartoonist. He's also based in Oakland, California. He came out with this amazing book called Family Style、um, through First Second, and it's just about. It's like the first time he's really done memoir, and I think this is the. I think this is like the time when he was. He just said, "Okay, I can totally do this now."、Um, and it's basically about being a Vietnamese refugee、um, during the eighties, seventies, eighties, and. And and intersecting that with his love of food, so、um, so his love of family and love of food, and it shines through so well, and it's it actually made me cry, which is which makes me mad because like I'm I always give Tin, who's like a cousin to me, like a brother, a hard time, and and for him to write a story that actually makes me cry. And it's sentimental and amazing, and it, it, it's it's great. So that book's getting a lot of buzz. It was、yeah. on our top ten list for when it came out,、uh, like our anticipated list, and it got a big star review in PW. And、uh, he was he writes for the Eater in San Francisco too. Is that right? So he's got like a kind of local foodie artist、yeah. vibe. Sometimes he yeah he does he works for also KQED our local affiliate for PBS. He does this strip called I Love Eating. So, so his book、uh, incorporates his love for eating, but also his love of his family and where he comes from, and yeah, it's just a great mix. It's just so. Let's not stray too far from your book. I, I,、yeah. I should I should do duty there because I'm really excited about it. I really love your work, and I'm really interested in you taking a turn to fiction.、Yeah. Can you talk about the development of the book and like how long it took and what kind of things you had to do differently in approaching a story that wasn't your own? Because much of your other work has come out of memoir. Yeah, and especially with a memoir, like I, I come from this like sketchbook diarist approach and this this kind of spontaneous、um, way of writing, like stream of consciousness. And this was a totally different approach where I was totally had to organize my thoughts and my and 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 pay attention to plot, you know, to plot and story arcs and to to beats and to also like making sure this was like a, a you know the. 
that it was like because it, it was a film noir. It had to everything had to just come together the right way. Um, and so, yeah, it was a very different preparation. I had to do a lot of like outlining and thumbnailing and the script, a full script, like a panel by panel script. So that's totally different from what I, and a lot of research. Um, but also there's like still that auto bio side of it where like, um, I was also paying homage to my family's immigration story because my family came to the U.S. around the same time period as these characters in the book. So there is that still that personal side of, of storytelling that's in the book. So there's a mystery at the heart of the story that sort of draws people in. You wanted to give us like a little hint to the readers, a little, or listeners, the listeners, a little hint about that? Yeah, um, it's set in 1929, which is around the around the beginning of the Great Depression. And if uh, our lead character, his name is Alessandro Juanez, but his nickname is Bobot, so everyone calls him Bobot. And he is he had a law degree in the Philippines, but wanted to come to the America to uh, make make money for his family. And um, but he finds himself as a migrant worker and working in the fields. And he comes across all these these different characters, and along the way, he finds out that his own wife, who's still supposed to be in the Philippines, has actually been seen in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And so that leads him on an adventure um, in San Francisco in this um, Filipino community called Manila Town that has been around for decades but is actually not really existent currently in San Francisco because of urbanization and everything else. So um, so there's like a layers of mystery and there's amazing characters and really interesting stories um, within stories. And, um, and it's fun. I think, you know, a lot of people I, I've heard have just like loved... It's such a, it, they're, they're just so into the story that they, it's like one of these stories that like, it's like a one sitting, one sitting reading. Mm-hmm. Like, like they're really, they just want to know what happens at the end. There's a lot of plot twists and it, it's, it's just fun. It's just. You have a fast paced sort of gestural style too. Like yeah. you have a way that you can move quickly into the world of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, I think you said your son might do Bobot cosplay. Did that happen? No, it didn't. It's just so hot in San Diego. And so I, and he loves suits. He loves suits. He loves wearing fedoras. And now he's a teenager. Well, now he's a teenager. And so he's like all in black, even though, so that's hot too. (laughs) But he's in his black t-shirt, black pants, and his hair is like huge. And, um, but yeah, he's not doing it. I mean, I even thought of doing some cosplay for the Bobut role or the man in the Macintosh suit. But, um, yeah, it's just, it's, yeah, it's too hot in there. Well, that's like a theme too, right? Of the styling of Filipino of that period. Like, there's a lot around um, the kind of. Well, you tell me, like the couture. Yeah, and that was the fun part too about it is um, I wanted to. Well, the the, the Macintosh shoot has played such an important role, and it's so symbolic, and it's about you know talking about this glamour and these hopes and dreams that a lot of these Filipino immigrants like Bobot um, aspire to have uh, like a very sophisticated and well-off life in America and that was their whole dream when coming to America is that they it would be something way better than it was in the Philippines for them and so it's sort of it's a symbolic uh, uh, gesture of like hope and, and dreams and just be just becoming you know something bigger than they are and and also a way to escape reality because reality is just working in the fields and not being able to 
you know, own property or like love the people that they want to love or, you know, um, or just being who they are. And so, um, the suit represents like, it's kind of like cosplaying actually. Mm-hmm. If you think about it. It's, um, but yeah. And then it was just so much fun to like draw a suit to that era or right. draw just like, um, just like, uh, dresses or like sportswear for like women in that era and so it was really fun to like even do research for it i looked at a lot of like norma i'm like a norma Shearer fan so early like 20s silent film stars um marina loy is like one of my favorites so like just getting to draw that and like have them in philip like filipino characters wearing them is, is fun because you don't get to see that in, you didn't get to see that in American Hollywood. You know, like a lot of Asian actors and actresses didn't get lead roles like, roles like that. And so it was just fun to have that in my story, having them be in lead roles themselves. We're getting some good ambient co- uh, <laughs> Comic Con noise, as I was saying. Yeah, there's a beautiful look to the book. It has this um, impressionistic style in some spaces, and yet yeah, there's like a sharpness to the outfits. Right. Yeah. And, um, it's not like your typical film noir where it's like stylized and it's, it has my style of being very fluid and, and, um, and I wanted it to be animated and cinematic. I wanted to show off movement mm-hmm. and, um, and just like energy. And so, uh, my last book with Blame Us on the Boogie was full on Technicolor, every color of the rainbow. And I was very strategic with color. Um, and texture and kind of like uh, that whole theme of the Macintosh suit with textures and fabrics, kind of putting that in there. Um, but still being, I love color, so still being able to use different bright colors to evoke a feeling or a setting um, was just fun to even like think about, you know, um, and to be strategic about. So so let's remind our listeners, the man the Macintosh suit, it's out now. When did it come out? It came out May 2nd. Okay, yes. so it's newly released. Yes. Pick it up. That's from John and Quarterly. Yeah. Thank you, Rena. Thank you, Meg. Thank you. Okay, this is Meg again at More to Come, and we're here at San Diego Comic-Con 2023. Back in action. So I'm sitting with Sierra Han and Hunter Gorenson of Oni Lion Forge, and I particularly wanted to get Sierra because she is new to Oni as an executive. Well, tell me your title. I'm the editor in chief as of February. Yeah, very fancy, um, but not new to comics publishing or editorial. So you've had a fairly long career at this point. How many years have you been an editor acquiring comics? I've been in comic book publishing uh, just over eighteen years, and I guess sixteen have been in editorial. Have you always been on the West Coast? Like, are you in the Pacific Northwest? Yeah, I actually started doing publicity for DC Vertigo in New York, and I did that for two years, then transitioned over to Dark Horse Comics in Portland, Oregon, okay. in the Pacific Northwest. And then you were at Boom, and then now you are at Oni. Right. So tell me a little bit about, like, what that transition has been. Are you are you inheriting some books and acquiring others? Like, what's, what's really, what's your favorite project you're working on right now? Oh, I'm like, would be crushing creative hearts if I talk about my favorite project. Okay. Yeah, let's not name it your favorite. What is a project? What is just a project? <laughs> Any child of the lineup that you have something interesting to say about. And it's fine to, you know. Yeah, so are there too many secrets? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was thinking about my own personal editorial projects, but 
you know, right now jumping in, a lot of my focus has just been building the team and mm-hmm. some structure for the team on an editorial level that, so that we're all collaborating and have the, the bandwidth to focus on acquisitions and creative development. Um, that's kind of been the first few months on the job, getting to know everyone, getting to know Oni and what makes it tick, and then really focus and buckle down on creative. So some of the things we have coming out in the short term on like the graphic novel side, um, we've got uh, this Brenna Thumler trilogy. Um, there's Sheets, Lights, and Delicates. The third volume is coming out in September, I believe. Um, and it's a phenomenal graphic novel series in the YA space. Um, but we also are bringing a lot more to the direct market, which I think uh, Oni hasn't had a robust um, sort of foot in that space for a while. And so working with Hunter and the rest of the team, we really wanted to bring in some interesting, fun, left-of-center titles for the fall. So what you'll start seeing um, starting in August is a series called Dwellings by Jay Stevens, um, who's been part of the Oni, Oni Library for a really long time. But it's been a while since he's done anything new with Oni. He um, crowdfunded, right, Dwellings, and it was something that Hunter fell in love with as somebody who was invested in the crowdfunding side of things, that we were able to talk with Jay, bring him on board. And Dwellings is this project I'm really excited about. It was a few weeks ago as we were going into sort of the FOC period of when people needed to place orders that I was like, I think if people don't take a position now, they're going to regret it because they're going to find out how phenomenal and fun this book is. And it feels like a real testament to the kind of stuff that we want to be publishing. And so Jay is just a brilliant cartoonist and storyteller to begin with, but he's doing this sort of spin on old Harvey comics of Casper the Friendly Ghost, um, Wendy... Wendy. Wendy the Good Witch, Casper, Richie Rich, Hot Stuff, my personal favorite, The Little Devil. Yeah, you guys, okay, wait, so we have a very, like, insider, comics crowd listenership, but not, everybody doesn't know every acronym. Can you tell people what FOC is? Like, let's explain it to this readership, if it's possible. FOC is final order cutoff, so traditionally for the direct market, there's two ordering periods. There's There's initial orders, which usually come 30 days after a book is solicited, and then retailers can adjust those orders up or down usually 23 days before the book goes on sale, and that's called FOC. And if you see on social media a comic book publisher saying, please pre-order by this date, and make sure that's what they're, that's what the date is. It's the FOC date. It's the last date that you can guarantee that you get a book pre-ordered by its on-sale date. Right. This is one of the beauties of the direct market, right, is that you can arrange your printing based on this since it's not returnable. Correct. Right. And then how does that, you know, as someone who's, as a publisher, it's bridging the direct market and the trade market. Um, but you're saying moving more into the direct market again. You know, do, do you feel like you've got an acrobatic to think about print runs for your trade volumes versus these uh, direct market orders? Yeah, I mean, that's a continual thing that we juggle all the time. It's, impi- it's very, very difficult to get if you're printing um, hard covers or soft covers for the book market. A lot of those are produced overseas. There is a lot of guesswork and anticipation that goes into that. Um, and it's something that we talk about all the time, especially for like a high, in, a high volume in demand book. Right. We publish Genderqueer, as I'm sure you know, by Maya Kobabe, mm-hmm. uh, which is an incredibly well-selling title. Um, and it's like, 
we have to, when there's certain events that happen in the media or something like Pride Month comes around, you can see like a huge fluctuation in demand for that book. And we're committed to keeping that book in print continuously for both comic book stores and independent bookstores and the mass market. Uh, and you have to like keep up with that and watch stock on that and make sure that you are going to have the unit. So it's something we're talk about daily at this point. Maya was a PW reviewer that I worked with. Uh, oh, wow. Yeah, and Maya stopped when the book was coming out. And as we all know, has been very, very busy since. <laughs> so, Sierra, tell me what, you know, the transition has been like in terms of you're saying you're, you're doing managerial work, right? Are you, are you hiring? Are you just like, trying to get to know your team? Yeah, it's largely be getting another team. Um, we do hope to continue growing the department through this year and next year as we continue to acquire. I mean, we're going to have a really robust slate next year. Um, if you look back at what we're doing this year and probably the year prior, next year is going to be a lot more content, a stronger presence in both markets, in the direct market and in the book market. Um, you know, we don't want to leave any stone unturned in this industry. If you have an opportunity to reach audience through different mediums, then we want to embrace that and we want to make that happen. Um, but yeah, it's definitely both. And it's, it's a small but mighty team. I think that's what really excited me, uh, partly about coming on board with Oni is like, these are people who want to buckle down. They want to do good work. They believe in what they're doing and they, they believe in, um, Oni's legacy, but also its potential. So. So there has been a lot of change at Oni Lion Forge and comics in general. Are you finding as someone new coming on that there's things you're, you're, you need to do with creators as well as people working for you to help like people feel like this ship is steadying? Yeah, I think a lot of it's just being open to conversation, listening to people, giving them a platform to speak their mind and listen and implement change and take action where you can or be candid about the areas where you can't. And maybe you can't today, but it gives you a path or something to work toward. Um, so I think that's the biggest thing is just coming to the table with compassion and empathy and acknowledging um, the changes that have happened um, and then getting everyone sort of on board and in alignment with a path forward, which everyone at Oni is really hungry for. Um. Wait, can you both tell me how the Comic-Con's going for you? So everyone's talking about the writer's strike and the SAG-AFTRA, which is, like, in solidarity. And, you know, but there's a change, right? So there's a, are you feeling like there's more focus on the books? Are you seeing more people come by the booth? Because there's not as many celeb sightings to hold them up? I don't know about that. I think like I think there's several overlapping audiences that come to an event like Comic Con or especially at Comic Con, which is you have people who only came for media previously. You definitely have diehard comic book fans who want the exclusives and rare collectible stuff. You have people who want to go to Fantagraphics and spend five hundred dollars on every new beautiful graphic novel that they've put out. So there's like there's overlap in that in those concentric in the Venn diagram of of readers, but I think it's personally refreshing to have a Comic-Con, a San Diego Comic-Con for one year that is like purely purely San Diego Comic-Con. Uh, I first started coming to the show in maybe 2010 or 2011 and that was like peak peak, you know, all of the Avengers are going to be in Hall yeah, H. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that was insane. And this is still insane. Don't get me wrong. It feels like... The good news is, is I think every single person that would have been camping out 
uh, for Hall H is currently on the show floor walking around. So that's nice, too, is that they get to experience it for themselves. Who knows? Maybe for the first time. What about you, Sierra? Yeah, I don't... I mean, also, solidarity with SAG and WGA. So I want to give them a shout-out. And I think... Yeah, there's a lot of people on the floor really engaged with the material. I think um, mostly what I'm seeing out there is just people are paying attention to signing schedules, who the guests are. There's really devoted, diehard um, fans of some of the material that we're publishing that's up and coming, that's not even out in stores yet. And that's been really gratifying and exciting to see of like, okay, we're going to, we're building momentum um, in our slate and for what's to come. People are really engaged. Um, and yeah, so it's, I haven't been to Comic Con in, I think, eight years. So um, it's been good to be back and, and feel like you can actually walk around the floor and talk to people. It doesn't feel um, claustrophobic to me. It just feels energizing right now. Do you look for talent at Comic Con? Do you scout here? A little bit. Um, I think most of it's, oh, I'm familiar with that writer's work or that illustrator's work or that cover artist or that letterer, and that's someone I want to talk to, and I know they're going to be at this place at this time. So, yeah, there's a lot of networking that goes on on that level where I go seek out their table or I seek out their signing schedule or track them down at the Eisner Awards. Um, So that's a lot of what my time here has been is just setting up with meetings that the people I either know or I've worked with historically, but also folks that I've never had the opportunity to meet and um, that I just admire and want to talk to them a little bit about what we're doing. Well, welcome to Oni. <laughs> Thank you. And it's really great to talk to both of you for more to come.